Welcome to another episode of Miyazaki and Me. I'm Kyle. And I'm Shane. In this episode, we're going over Princess Mononoke. Uh, and in as a little special treat for this episode, we're actually going to splice in uh, a couple little mini interviews that I did with a few people uh, to uh, just kind of add some variety. And I'll just be splicing those in between... Uh, kind of between segments, and you'll you'll know when those uh, little breaks happen. So, yeah, you'll be able to tell by the fact that they're not us talking. Yes, that <laughs> that will be a very big giveaway. Uh, the fact that it will not be us uh, talking. I really love this movie. I will put that put that out there. Uh, it it was fantastic, and. Yeah, I'm I'm really really looking forward to uh, this conversation uh, because I really enjoyed this movie. I'll say there there's a lot of things going on in this movie. There's a lot of feelings. You know, it's it's about a, it's about fear and overcoming and pride in a sense. And uh, but but there's really one thing that this movie is truly about, and that's a love a boy has for his elk. It it really is, yeah. There there's a lot that we that we talk about with with the elk, um, and and various other, or uh, animals. Yeah. It's it's really about it's really about nature, first and yeah, foremost. Cool is, is the true is the true star of this of this movie. Yeah, cool. Yes, the, the elk. Uh, so Princess Mononoke was initially released on July twelfth of nineteen ninety seven, uh, in Japan. Uh, it had a budget of about 24 20 23.5 million dollars uh, so it was one of the bigger budgets that studio ghibli had to work with um, and they definitely put every penny into it and ended up grossing worldwide uh, nearly as as of 2020 uh, through its various releases it has grossed uh, 194.3 million dollars worldwide yeah this was actually for a very short period of time the biggest movie in uh biggest box office movie in, in japan's history uh and when i say very short i mean very short because it was beat later that year in 97 by titanic by one million dollars yeah yeah titanic <clears throat> in 1997 was just a phenomenon that really did go globally. Yeah. Beating, beating this for, for the box office is, is a little ridiculous. It, as, as I said, it, it had multiple releases. So it was, it was, it was initially released in the United States in October of 29th of 1999. Uh, but let's go back to its initial release for our, for our animation timeline. On what else was released in 1997? Uh, three uh, three big uh, films were released, uh, animated films, and that was Anastasia, The End of Evangelion, and Hercules. I think it's a stretch saying Anastasia was a big film. I mean, I know it's loved by a lot of people we know, but I don't think it necessarily did that great, did it? the 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 more important things things weren't oddly enough weren't the theatrical releases it was actually what was put on television 
uh, because you know here here are our two shortest lived uh, series to come out of that year, and that was Spawn and King of the Hill, and also in 1997 the first series for Pokemon. You want to be the very best, like no one was before. Uh, and then oddly, and then oddly enough, two series that are still running, and that would be South Park and One Piece. Oh God, there's so many episodes of One Piece. I believe they hit a thousand this year. Uh, if not, they're very, very close to it because I know they were in the nine hundreds. Yeah, it it's it's at least it's at least yeah it's at least in the nine hundreds. That is that is one I watch a lot of anime. That is one that I will never touch because that is too many episodes. Says the guy that's watching Naruto. Um, so, but yeah, it's surprising to see that there are not just one but two shows from 1997 animated shows that are still running. I mean, yes, they're both they are both cultural phenomenons in very different ways. All right, uh, Thor, based on my banner. Um, the first time I saw Princess Mononoke would have been, it would have been in 1999 when it originally came out. Uh, I remember actually going to the theaters to see it. It was a very limited release. I think we went to the Lagoon in Uptown um, in, uh, in Minnesota. If you're from Minnesota, you know Uptown. It's kind of one of the more popular areas, and they used to have a, a theater there called the Lagoon where they show a lot of anime stuff and a lot of fringe stuff that you could get in the bigger theaters. Like, that was before the days of, like, the fa- the Fathom, you know, series that they do in theaters now. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, those, like, when they do Dragon Ball and stuff nowadays. But I remember, I mean, I'll be honest, like, um, it was the 90s, so obviously, when the first time I saw it, there were psychedelics involved. And it's, I mean, visually, one of the most stunning things I still remember. And I've seen a lot of things visually on psychedelics, but this one, even, what, 20-some years later, stands out to me, you know? There's so many parts, there's just so many parts of that movie, but just the way nature, like, when the night, when nature starts to kind of revolt, you know what I mean, and you start to see some of those, like, some of the monsters that the, the animals are turning into, or, like, that they become, you know what I mean? Like, the boar that's covered in, it's not blood, but it's, like, it's, like, covered in something, that like boar about the boar beast, yeah, those the parasite things, yeah, that um, you know, that's some of the stuff that even today I can just I can see visually in my mind, um, at some of the battles and stuff like that. It's just you know that movie, that movie, it's something I think even just talking about it makes me want to rewatch it. So the release in America for Mononoke is kind of interesting because originally they wanted Tarantino, uh, to do it, and he actually recommended the person who helped translate it and adapt it for for the American audience, which is Neil Gaiman. Uh, And the reason why he recommended Neil Gaiman was that his mother was a big fan of Neil Gaiman, Tarantino's mother. Uh, But yeah, let's let's get into uh, Princess Mononoke itself. Uh, Obviously directed by uh, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, written by Hayao Miyazaki. He actually initially did some of the sketches for Princess Mononoke back in the 1980s, actually. Yeah, the, the original story, the original draft actually was late 70s. Yep, uh, and it's and it's really changed a lot around the way, uh, around the time. There's been a lot of different iterations of what he wanted to do with this at one point. 
at one point he had her being married off to a demon. Uh, there was there was uh, oh uh, there was a point where it was a uh, Princess Monoki would be a samurai's daughter, and there'd be a magical cat from the mountains. Uh, there was and with that one actually some of some of the original drafts for Mononoke ended up becoming different things because uh, one of the sketches that he used from that ended up becoming more and more Totoro-esque and he ended up liking that for more of a children's theme. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and uh, Miyazaki has said that he, he took a lot of elements uh, from uh, Nausicaa and, and like the background elements in the mountains and you can you can feel that because like this is a almost a more polished version of you know the overall tone um, and the overall kind of meaning behind of you know being very environmentally conscious and stuff like that. It are themes that he played with in Nausicaa and I think plays with and does in a better, uh, more succinct way here in Princess Mononoke. I very much agree with that. I was going to bring up the point that this felt like a more complete version of what Nausicaa was trying. Uh, there were things that I loved about Nausicaa, but it felt like it should have been much longer uh, because they just left so many uh, dangling threads and they they didn't fully develop relationships. And this one, even only being, you know, I, I believe the movie runs at two hours and 10 or 13 minutes altogether. Uh Nothing feels incomplete. I feel like every relationship in this movie, every character is fleshed out just the amount that they need to be. It, it felt like he took everything from Nausicaa that worked and built off of that more succinct film. Yep. And uh, I, I I wasn't able to watch the full version uh, in Japanese, uh, but I did. It is funny, uh, just the differences in the fact that uh, I spotted a difference within 10 seconds of the, of the movie, and that is the fact that the Japanese version just starts with a text prologue, and then the American version, it's that same text prologue, but it is narrated by Keith David. Uh, yeah, and there's actually a, a reason for this, uh, and that's because uh, when Gaiman was adapting it for for american audiences they wanted to they there's a lot of things that are that are going to be very obvious for japanese audiences in this where because it's from their culture it's stories that they've heard and it's not going to be the same for the english audience they wanted an explanation to be had for for certain things and so uh, a lot of the adjustments that uh that gaiman made were just to explain really uh, uh certain things that that might seem obvious to the to, to in Japan, but not to Americans. Uh, although he did uh, state that when it came, he, he did change a lot of things to make it more, uh, to make us understand it a little bit better, uh, including when he had to cut off uh, his hair as he left the village, how that, that's a big thing in, in Japan uh, back, you know, back in, in the folk days of they, you know, they never cut their hair until they were banished. And then they would, they would slice off their hair to, to show that they were releasing what the, their past. Um, so they, 
they explained that in here, he did point out that he he was not the one that chose to change the word sake to wine, and he felt that it was ridiculous, and he was very upset that they did that. <laughs> oh, really? That was uh, I did I didn't even notice that that change, but it, yeah, it makes sense. It's like, yeah, why like people you know Western audiences should know what sake is like. It's yeah, it's, it shouldn't be that big of a difference. Uh, but yeah, it, it like with the hair thing, like it's almost. You know, that that is definitely a cultural thing. Like we, we got teases of it in for a, a mo- modern example would be like the, the Dothraki in Game of Thrones, you know, never cutting off um, their braid unless they were defeated because it was kind of a symbol of a shame. And it, it seems like it was kind of that same similar type of mentality. Now, with this movie, uh, Miyazaki... Uh, he was supposed to retire for this film. Uh, this was going to be his last one. He put a lot into this, as you as you said, he had been working on it since the late seventies. Uh, but he he pushed a lot of his anger into this film too. He was actually upset uh, about the Yugoslav Wars, um, which was actually the it was the breakup of Yugoslavia, um, and he felt like. He had done so many happy things. He was actually quoted. Uh, I don't have the exact quote, but he was actually. Essentially quoted, oh, I do have the exact quote. He said, the war happened and I learned that mankind doesn't learn. After that, we couldn't go back and make some film like Kiki's Delivery Service. It felt like children were being born to this world without being blessed. How could we pretend to, to them that we're happy? So he he is putting that, he, he wanted to point out how bad and bloody war is and how it's just a lot of loss. And that's And you see that in this film a lot of just a lot of loss. Actually, uh, it's speaking of, of Miyazaki's retirement, uh, some people actually point out uh, Yoshifumi Kondo. Uh, it might have actually been his death shortly after this movie was released uh, that kind of sparked Miyazaki's idea of retiring. Uh, because, you know, as we talked about in Whisper of the Heart, uh, Kondo seemed like he would be successor for for Miyazaki uh but then he you know died suddenly and I think that took a lot out of Miyazaki uh even though Kondo did actually work on uh Princess Mononoke as well uh it was the last thing Kondo did yeah and and Miyazaki did also because I think he thought that this might be one of his last, he put a lot into it. There were 144,000 animation cells done for this, and Miyazaki himself personally uh, corrected or redrew more than 80,000 of them. So his fingerprints are literally everywhere on this movie. There's nothing he did not touch. Yeah, well, because as as we've pointed out multiple times, like uh, Miyazaki does do his own storyboards as well. Uh, for for his films so yeah from the storyboard element and to yeah even going over and redrawing cells uh, and you pointed out before we were recording this that uh, this was one of the last films to do to go fully on the plastic animation cells uh, before everything kind of get got drawn into uh, digitally yeah, and and this movie actually there there is a bit of digital animation in it, which is the the way they use it is really cool because it looks so 
slimy. It's the demon tentacles is the is the demon animation is the digital animation. And it just looks so different from everything else and so slimy, so otherworldly that it's just used it it's just so well used. Yeah, it's yeah, and I I, I like I I liked that in the fact that, you know, in, in a lot of other things, my my biggest example because I'm a big uh DC animation uh fan and the DC animated films and TV shows would always end up doing their like vehicles in 3D. And it was always so jarring because it was like, well, this is something that should be in the same world, but it has such a different look. Whereas this, it made sense to do, you know, like you said, the demon tentacles as 3D because it was so otherworldly that it doesn't throw you off because it feels like it should look differently. Yeah, the disconnect from the world actually adds to the to the unnatural unnatural the demon, uh, how it's not supposed to be there. Uh, so it so it adds to the feel. It doesn't disconnect you from it. It just makes it makes them disconnected from the movie, but not you, in a way. Yep, I, and I, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but. Yeah, and 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 speaking of the, the of the demon tentacles, we are, uh, you know, there's there's a film term called in media res, like when you're thrown right into the middle of a scene, and that is kind of what we get. Like we get this short, you know, prologue that is only a few sentences, but then it, we're immediately, you know, these children, you know, coming back and saying it's like, hey, we've got to get back to town before. You know, something's coming, something's coming. And it's like, wait, what's coming? You know, we don't know. And then we're introduced to Ashitaka and, you know, see this demon boar come out from the forest. Beautifully animated, so surreal looking. And we are just thrown right into the action right away. Yeah, and that's a theme of this movie is that it doesn't let up on the action really at all at any point. Even even during the the scenes where there's discussions and talk, like there's feel of there the stakes don't don't fall. Uh there's there's always something pushing this movie to the next to the next plot point, to the next scene, to the next area. And and it starts right from the beginning with this this demon boar popping out and and you know obviously causing the stakes for the film itself by wrapping its its uh, tentacles around uh, Ashitaka and 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 putting him with this curse. Uh, it, it's just it, it gets you from the get go and does not let go throughout the entire film. Yeah, it's like in in some ways, and I mean this obviously as a compliment. Like this is paced like an action movie, you know, where you get these. These big set pieces of, you know, this this action scene, you know, with the boar. But then you get a little bit of a lull in talking about, oh, you know, Ashitaka meeting with the elders of the village and, you know, finding out that he's cursed and has to go on this search because uh, they said people to the West are more violent and we need, need uh, you with your... Uh, you know, peaceful, untainted eyes uh, to be to approach this in in a good vision, 
to figure out where this curse came from. Yep, and and as he moves his way out west, uh, he also finds out that this curse, whenever he... They don't say this out loud in the movie, but whenever he seems to be angry or upset or something that affects him uh, in a way that, that could push him towards rage, towards towards anger, uh, he he grow, gets strength from the curse and it makes him more powerful. Uh, he, he Even by using his bow and uh, against uh, uh, people attacking a village, he straight up takes off their heads and off... And the first thing he does is take both arms off of a guy with a with a sword raise. Like it, it, the power that this curse gives him, uh, it's it, it's it's my what I portrayed from it was that it was it's a uh, a sense of kind of the 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 symbiote uh, kind of feel of like we're giving you this power, but we want to push you to the dark side uh, because of the use of it, uh, and and so it's it's this whole thing of. Uh, Ashitaka, you know, when he needs the power, it's there. Uh, but having to fight against, you know, just using it for the obvious way of, you know, let's, how, what if I just kill them and that will bring peace, you know? And he fights against that throughout the whole movie, which is kind of cool. But seeing that power he gets from that curse is is really, really cool. Like, you don't expect a curse to give you ad- additional power. Yeah, and, and yeah, it almost feels like it, it ends up being... This, yeah, this very strong but uh, naturally violent type of symbiote, like you said. Um, whereas, like, it seemed because even, even other than the you know, full on bullseye shot, you know, early on, every every shot that he was doing before he's cursed isn't really a kill shot except for that one. And that definitely was a last resort. Like, you know, I, I can't, I can't do anything else. Like I have to go for the kill here. Whereas then immediately once he gets cursed, anytime he uses that hand, that thing is going straight for the kill. Like in a kill in the most violent way possible. Like you said, taking out the, the arm, like taking off the arms of the one scout and then, and full on, and shooting off the head of the other. And the violence in this movie is big. I mean, it's it's such a departure from even other violent uh, Studio Ghibli films. And Nausicaa would be a you know a good one to point out with that that did have violence. I mean, there is blood that you see. One of the first things you see when he gets to the West is is a samurai literally cutting the arm off of a uh, villager. Like it's there. It, it is it is much darker than you anticipate uh, going into a studio Ghibli movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, like we, we, we talked about early on of, you know, some movies not knowing the tone uh, that they would have. And this movie definitely sets its tone early on and keeps with it. Um, and it's like, no, this is not a children's movie. You know, whatsoever this this is violent. Like this will be, you know, a little scary for some. Hold on. You know, basically, I mean, I, our introduction to one of the main characters is uh, the first time we really see her, uh, and that is San. Uh, is San sucking out the blood and the poison? Um, and her entire face covered in blood, 
side and just staring at Ashitaka from across the stream. Hi, this is Connor back again. Um, for me, Prince of Monoki is special because the first uh, Studio Ghibli film I saw, I really didn't grow up with them, but then in high school, my cousins introduced me to it and said, you got to watch this movie. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I just immediately fell in love with it. And, you know, it's it's that kind of cliche that, you know, the first one you see is your favorite forever. And that's kind of true. It's still my favorite to some degree. I think it's this amazing, beautiful epic that it, it can appeal uh, you know, it can appeal to children, obviously, but it also can appeal, I think, to any great film fan. I think it deserves to be seen as like a masterpiece of, you know, epic cinema. It should be the Lawrence Arabia of animation. It's this great, amazing, powerful epic that's very specific to Japanese culture and 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 uh, belief and history, but also extremely universal in this amazing, fun, exciting, thrilling adventure. It's such an interesting thing to think about uh, picking a favorite moment from its Monoke because on the one hand you've got the big action scenes, you've got you know uh, the fight with the forest spirit, you've got where where San invades the town, but you also have these incredible quiet moments. You have these moments where you know Ashitaka and Yakul are you know are just riding across the landscape while Joe Isashi's score just floods your senses. Uh, so it's this amazing combination of those the great oh, yeah, that was an amazing moment, and also just these quiet, intimate scenes where you just want to live in, live in the film. And also you have the, the, some comedy bits, too, that are great, and also every time the, the Kudamas, the little forest spirits show up for you, is the best thing in the world. <laughs> so I, I just love it, and uh, I hope everyone has seen it, obviously, but if you haven't seen it, you've got to watch it. Uh, they do a really good job of in this movie of showing the sides of both of this uh, this battle. Like obviously, you know, you don't like uh, uh, Iboshi and and Iron Town, which is where uh, Ashitaka ends up going to after he he uh, saves a few people on the road. Uh, you don't like their side of destroying the forest and you know fighting off the boars and everything. But the people of the town are good. Like you know, they're they're just trying to make a living. They're all they're all good people. In fact, a lot of them have been saved from from different types of life that you know they they didn't they didn't like ha- like they uh, most of the women there are from brothels and they uh, they point out that you know they were wasted in the brothels that they uh, and they're happy to be putting the women in this town do most of the work they they yeah. are uh, they are uh, strong female characters and all every single one of them which is amazing. Uh, and so you you do enjoy the people of the town, you know, maybe not necessarily the leaders, but the people of the town are great. And then on the flip side, you get the uh, the the wolf, uh, the wolf god uh, Moro, uh, yeah, uh, Moro and and her two children, well, three children, uh, San being the third children, third child, San in, in uh, Japanese is three, and uh, and how they are trying to you know protect their land and and keep the keep the forest whole and keep everything uh thriving with life uh, and replant the trees and uh and you you see both of these sides you just go they i they're both really like they're both necessarily fighting for the for good uh and you get ashitaku kind of threading that line of saying like let's live in peace while both sides are essentially yelling at him every time he's uh he speaks to them and saying no we have to kill them yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's also interesting the 
uh, how they divide up the factions as well, because, you know, you, you have, you know, you, you seem like it's set out clearly, you know, Moru and, and the wolf tribe against Eboshi and, and the citizens of Irontown. But then you find out like, oh, the, the boar tribe is also kind of at a little bit odds with, with the wolf tribe. The, you know, the gorillas are completely off on their own and are causing trouble for everyone. Um, and then you also then find out later on you have this this sect of samurais that are actually violent against the people of Irontown. And they're even a bigger threat to to a lot of other people. Yeah, and, and with the uh with the apes you actually get a nice little scene where it shows the desperation that they're trying to get to to get everything replanted, because they're talking about eating the humans to to gain their strength. Uh, and San is just like, that doesn't work that way. Don't even say that. That's not that's not something that you can do. Uh, and just kind of the the way that that war and devastation and, and desperation will drive you crazy. And and that's, I think, a lot of the point of this uh, of this film with with the way Miyazaki was feeling about about war at the time of, you know, it, people that have, you know, good good intention in mind to help themselves and their people. Uh, can do these crazy evil things to try to try to get there. Yeah, and and it's interesting in actually talking about uh, the uh, uh, the fact that Titanic was the one that uh, you know upset and seceded uh, Princess Mononoke as the as the highest grossing film in Japan to that date. Uh, James Cameron actually said he he cites Princess Mononoke as an influence actually on avatar uh, because of the different clashes in the cultures and being more environmental focused and, you know, concentrating on the ecosystem. Uh, he said, Princess Mononoke was a big influence on that film. I thought he just straight uh, copyright infringed uh Ferngully. No, it's a it's a combo. It's a combo of <laughs> of a lot of things. If you steal from a lot of different sources, it becomes your own. Okay. Uh, an interesting fact that I read about uh, Princess Mononoke that really is neither here nor there is that because Lady Eboshi wears red lipstick throughout the movie, she is actually one of very very few Studio Ghibli characters with actual lips. That actually makes a lot of sense, but yeah, that. Yeah, you don't think about that, but yeah, they they really haven't like, like everybody... they have mouths, but they don't draw lips. Yeah, yeah, like I, I was just gonna say, like yeah, everybody has has a mouth and obviously is animated with a mouth, but yeah, we we don't really get a lot of lips. That's um, yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Um... Hi, I'm Joey from the podcast Twinema Cinema, and uh, thanks for having me back on again, Kyle. So the first time I watched Princess Mononoke was, I think it was like 2005, because I saw it with my uh, girlfriend at the time, Andrea, and we watched it uh, in her, her bedroom. And I think we were just like sitting on the floor, kind of, uh, because we both got into 
the Studio Ghibli films at like the same time. She's the one who introduced me to it. And so I think this was the second one we watched together after Spirited Away. My initial thoughts were that this is just a really beautiful film because just the messaging in it is so easy for people to relate to, especially if you have any um, concerns about the environment. This pretty much puts them right at the forefront of your mind in a very visceral way. Just these human beings dealing with the the duality of the world, the man-made elements, and dealing with uh, the natural elements. And man, it it's it's a striking movie. And I I've never seen the the Japanese language original, but the voice cast in the uh, English dub is just superb. And man, it's intense. It's an intense movie i think that's the thing about it even though there's like elements of child abuse in spirited away i don't think it quite emotionally impacted me as much as uh, princess mononoke did it it starts out with a, a you know like you said a battle sequence basically and and then from that um our uh protagonist we he saves the day but then is simultaneously made an outcast and can never come home. So it's just like a very uh, tragic beginning in that way. And then we follow him on his journey and it's, it's crazy. Like one of the things that this is such a random piece that stands out to me, but it always made me smile when I've seen it is when he does get to like the iron city, when he helps them with the, like the, what are those things called? But like where, where they're the air that moving the air through the system and like, they're all pressing on it together. And then he steps in for a moment because he's super strong and he just does all the work for them. And it's just like such a, a chill little moment, but it, it just gets me because he's so powerful in this moment, but he also actually really respects the work that they're doing. He's impressed by their, their work ethic and in a lot of movies, that kind of a scene could go the other way, where someone who is so strong just pulls like a Gaston type move where he's just a dick about it. But instead, he's immediately like, wow, this is pretty hard for me. That's such a cool moment that's always stood out to me from the movie. I don't know why. I think maybe it's just the visuals of that situation, that kind of a real human moment. And also just like the camaraderie of the workers. It's just, it's a, it's a really cool introduction into that world. So yeah, one of the, one of the scenes actually, uh, Joey pointed out uh, when I was talking to him, uh, he pointed out like one of the things and in talking about the, the villagers of Irontown, one of his favorite scenes actually he said was, was the scene with the bellows. Um, as, as Ashitaka's in there and, and realizing like how hard these ladies actually work, um, in to construct everything. Yep. And when he takes over for them and, and starts doing it much, he does it stronger than them. But the first thing they say is, is, oh yeah, you're not going to last doing it like that. Uh, essentially, essentially saying like, yeah, we could probably do it like that, but we have four day shifts. We're not going to be able to. Uh, to up uphold that for four days 
Yeah, and I do, and I and I wonder how much of this is the is the translation. I like all the little. Um, you almost get the reverse of the women of the town are almost catcalling Ashitaka at some points, uh, because like, oh, you're the first attractive man we've seen in a really long time. Like, look at our husbands; they're all terrible looking. You're really pretty. Yeah, yeah, I, I like the uh, oh, I bet you're attractive, and then they pull off. The, he pulls off the mask. They go, "You're not attractive. You're gorgeous." Yeah. <laughs> it's just, just like yeah, no, that's a that's a fun little. <laughs> yep, yeah, it's a it's a fun yeah variation of it. Uh, uh, and uh, we also have Lady Eboshi is is using uh, lepers to make the guns for for uh, her her villagers. Uh, yeah, she she points out that that they've been shunned. Uh, most of the people in her town, in the town that she runs here, has been shunned by by the the normal society, and they're they're kind of living on the outskirts, kind of make it for themselves. Uh, and they for sure did make it for themselves because their whole reason why uh, the the emperor and the samurai are attacking them is because they took this land that that they couldn't do anything with, and suddenly it's profitable. Uh, but she she has the the lepers uh, in in a house by her, uh, her own home, uh, and saying like yeah even the people in town don't really come come up here, uh, and and the lepers are all very happy that that you know they have someone that's treating them like humans. Yeah, well, and then we even see later in the movie like kind of some of the some of the lepers do end up going um, around like to the rest of the the town. And the women of the tra- town treat them, you know, just like, especially because they're all fighting, you know, against and and for or this to keep the town safe. Um, they realize like, no, we're banding together. Like, we don't care about these differences. We are putting in everything that we have together to fight for what is ours. I, I really so. So one of the first scenes that we really see. Uh, San and just how completely like she she was raised in the forest and definitely has almost a little extra power you know to her and the fact like as she's basically trying to assassinate Lady Eboshi in Iron Town is a really thrilling scene as she's you know running on top of the rooftops uh, trying to get away from everybody. And then we get this fun like sword fight eight, between the two of them. And this is actually when uh, like Ashitaka, we find out just how incredibly powerful that his his arm is that's cursed um, because he ends up breaking up the fight and pushing and like uh, Sa- San gets knocked out. He takes San and pushes open this gate that even the 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 guards at the gate are like you can't move that it takes 10 men to move that and then he does it by himself uh there's also a little bit of foreshadowing here that i enjoy uh that you don't really realize until later on if on a on a rewatch but um as he's uh separating san and and uh, lady aboshi uh, uh lady aboshi says she's tired of of his cursed right arm and then shouts, let me just cut the damn thing off. And then 
later in the film, spoiler alert, she loses her right she arm. She loses her right arm, yeah. <laughs> um, and and also at this point in time, this is a, a major plot point, you know, Ashitaka gets shot. Yeah, and it doesn't... Uh, yeah, he does get shot, and it's kind of a cool little scene because you can tell the people of the village don't really want to shoot him, and it's almost by accident that she does fire the gun at him, but then it doesn't slow him down. He he pretty much doesn't react and just keeps keeps moving uh, because he has his purpose. He wants to save her. Uh, he wants to save San and and get out of there, and that's when he gets to the door, and, and he doesn't really get any kickback from the people of the village. They are... They, it's one of those where you see that they are good people. Like they, they don't want to hurt him. He saved some of them uh, and they just kind of let him go. Yeah. And, and yeah, he's and he, he point, we didn't, we didn't point this out earlier. Like he saved a couple of them when Lady Aboshi didn't like Lady Aboshi just, Oh, these guys fell. Well, the dead are dead. Let's keep going. Let's get back home. And he ends up saving two of the people and bringing them back, uh, which is how he originally gets to Irontown. Uh, but yeah, in being shot, uh, Ashitaka then you know finally gets gets San to safety, but then passes out, and really violent, really violent because the because the wolves finally show up uh, because they're out of Irontown, uh, so. There's this scene that, you know, Ashitaka's riding in back, San in front. Uh, Ashitaka falls off off our our great elk friend, completely just hits his head on these rocks, and it's like, okay, that probably would have broken his neck. And then if that didn't break his neck, the fact that one of the wolves just comes up there and full on grabs his head and just shakes it in his mouth or in, in their mouth. Like it was like, Whoa, Whoa, what's going on here? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of violence uh, in this and it's, it's pretty, pretty abrupt. You don't really expect it because at this point you expect them to kind of accept him in some way. Yeah. Uh, And the wolves really, the, the wolves really don't throughout the whole thing. They, they, uh, they see him as an outsider because he is a human, uh, even though he is a t- trying to work with them and, and trying to uh, almost broker a peace. Yeah. Uh, um, and then, and then, and then son baby birds, Ash, uh, you got, sometimes was, you got to baby bird him. Yeah. Which was it's like, no, just chew this. And then he doesn't chew it. And it's like, well, I guess I got to do this. And it's like, okay. I mean, that, that is what you'd end up doing, but it's just weird to see. Uh, and and you know you you see the uh, as he is now you know this this all leads into him having discussions with the wolves and like I said he's not fully accepted in there but but it's to the point where he is he's essentially had the same talk with both sides of of you know we, the killing needs to stop we need to figure out some a, a different way and nobody's accepting it. Uh, and this is when you find the the boars have returned uh, and have decided to to wage a war against the humans. Uh, and the uh, the lead boar, which I believe is Akotonushi, 
uh, or just a Kodo, is uh, who's voiced by Keith David in the in the English version. Keith David's one of my favorite voice actors ever because he's got a great voice. He's, he essentially says uh, uh, he's told that um, there's no way you're going to win this, and his response is, "Yeah, but they will always remember uh, this fight." So he 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 wants to essentially kill as many humans as possible. Of like, I don't care how many people we lose, we might lose everybody, but they're yeah, they're going to remember this. And it's like, oh wow, really? Okay, that's that's the level we've got. You know, the the you know the forest spirit just healed Ashitaka, uh, somewhat. You know, he healed healed the bu- bullet wound, but not the not the curse. Uh, remove, remove the, uh, the cause, but not the symptom. Yes. Here we go. Rocky Horror, baby. Um, uh, and so, so we, this all leads to a giant fight, uh, to a giant battle. Yeah. It it was really interesting because yeah, literally as, as I was recording with Joey uh, for our little interviews, uh, I, I had to pause right at about 40 minutes left, right when the fight scenes are about to start. And it's like, okay. Cause I told, I told him, I was like, I got to either do this right now or we're going to record in an hour. Cause I'm not stopping, you know, in this, you know, portion of this movie. And yeah. Cause, cause we have, yeah, the samurais all, uh, invading, uh, the, the iron town army, fighting the samurais in in open combat basically them not realizing that the boars and the the wolves are both going to attack but then jiho jiho who we haven't talked about at all uh voiced in the american version by billy bob thornton uh who's kind of a like at first i thought he was going to be this lovable little kind of like goofball side character and then it turns out it's like no, he's hunting and w- is going to, you know, try to kill and behead the 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 forest spirit. Yeah, throughout the entire movie, there's this side plot that that he is really uh, leading, where essentially you find out that he has a uh, written permission from the emperor to behead the forest spirits and bring the head back to the emperor, uh, and it is it is one of those things that. Uh, it, it's sort of you see it in a few scenes, and it's pushed a little bit here, pushed a little bit there, and at the end, it's really the crux for the giant's final battle. Is is essentially that the the emperor one wants this town and two wants his head, so it's used to uh, this greed is essentially used to attack all fronts. It's used to attack um, uh, the village, and it's used to attack the 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 gods and the the creatures of the of the forest. Um, all at once and tricking really everyone at the at the same time, uh, all in the name of greed. Yeah, and 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 it's it's crazy because yeah, we in this point ain't uh, kind of Ash almost uh, Ashitaka kind of almost embraces the fact that his his one arm is incredibly violent during this fight because he starts getting shot at with arrows and just snatches the arrows out of the air. And then decapitate somebody. The, I mean, the crux for that, he was, he was happy uh, fleeing and getting away and not harm. But the moment uh, 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 Yakul uh, gets hit with an arrow is when he's just like, nah, brah, nah, 
I love this elk. I am I am defending I am defending him, and he jumps off, and that's when he takes out these uh, uh, these samurai coming after him. Because as I said before, the main point of this movie is showing the love between a boy and his elk. So much, so much is yeah, is based off that relationship. Yet we also get you know he he obviously also cares very deeply about San as well. Even though Moru Moru really hates the fact that. Uh, you know, can definitely see the the relationship building between the two of them, and that's when uh, Moru tells tells Ashitaka to leave. But in the same in the same sense, uh, she pushes San to him because she points out that that you know he gave her a beautiful gift because he gives her the dagger. Um, well, essentially, he gives. Uh, uh, San's sibling the dagger to give to her that he received from his younger sister when he had when he was uh, exiled. So I am the Abracia. Um, I do clown torsion uh, pre-pandemic and sometimes online post-pandemic. I have loved Miyazaki. Let's see. My uncle introduced me to Miyazaki when I was like, oh gosh, I don't know four or five um and it was like a huge thing that we did together he was really into comics he loved um a bunch of different animes and like, he introduced me to like the world of comics and like marvel and he also introduced me to miyazaki and i think um spirited away um and princess mononoke were some of the first two that it was princess mononoke and then spirited away were the first two that he introduced us to so that's kind of interesting that so Princess Mononoke actually like the ending is kind of like oh I sometimes even it's one of those movies and one of those moments where it it just really feels deeply and the ending where it's like he they've solved a lot of their problems and it's kind of a happy-ish ending where you know like the forest and the people are like gonna try and work together and restart even though everything's burned like everything burned so everyone has to start over but like the something that they don't talk about in the movie as like these two you know who are in love are now separated also he never gets to go home and like i just think about that at the end of the movie like that ending scene where like he's looking out and she's looking back and then i'm like i think about like his people who, like, he never gets to go home to. And, I don't know, that moment for me is always just like, oh, my heart. I love that film. I think, like, the artistry, and there's a lot of, like, I like watching it both subbed and dubbed. I like both ways. Because, um, one, you know, one you can watch a little more casually, not reading along. Um, but I think it's a lot of the word choice and a lot of the, like, there's, like, very little moments that they, that he animates and it's like these like silent moments of motion throughout the film that are just so beautiful like the way like her earrings jingle and like looks up and then like the blood on her face and like there's just like these moments that just like evoke like so much throughout that entire movie that I just like that's a very like Miyazaki thing that he does really well but yeah I mean this this movie's just really good. Like, like we're kind of gushing over all of these, these moments and little character beats. And I, I love the fact that, you know, we can do that over this film. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just a, the great mix of beautiful animation, wonderful, wonderful story, fantastic fight scenes. 
uh, fantastical world. Uh, just, and I mean, the forest god themselves and the different forms that uh, that they take is just it's it's all it's it's breathtaking it's it's stunning it's like this this is a just a i mean it, it's a great film it's everything that uh it's everything that i wish nausicaa was and more yeah and well, I, well, and I think... the, yeah like 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 we said the the relationship between the two like at the first time that you see the night walker um like it it has almost a similar you know visual style to those you know those five you know gods you know the earth movers uh, you know in in nausicaa yeah very much so uh they there's a lot of imagery and and uh feel that is that is from that was used in nausicaa that that is you know finalized in this I would also say that it has very much a, a Zelda feel for a lot of it. In fact, I would uh, I would say that Zelda probably stole a lot of their uh, of their things from this. Yeah, um, for the, for the more modern games, yeah, I can I can definitely see that. Yeah. Yep. Especially uh, uh, Breath of the Wild, I think I think took some of the some of the look and feel um, of not just uh, of Ashitaka in the in the uh, character design of Link. Uh, but uh, also uh, there's little things called Kuroks all over um, in Breath of the Wild, and there are uh, little little forest sprites all over in this movie uh, as well that are very, very similar looks, and, and the way that they move is also very similar. And I understand that it's probably something from Japanese folklore, but I wouldn't be surprised if it, they they really used it because of this film yeah yeah and that, that's like also one of the thing you can really see um going forward is like the influence that you you almost don't even realize like it's just you know it's so ingrained and like in 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 a creator that the, you don't even realize that you're taking elements from that um but but it ends up doing that of like like no that was just oh i didn't even think about it you know the fact that it is so similar i just you know kind of in my subconscious was was thinking of you know princess mononoke when i was designing this thing kind of kind of element oh very much there. so i mean the the greatest compliment is borrowing uh from from other films and and other other forms of media i mean it's not necessarily stealing or or you know ripping off a character it's just it's gets so ingrained in your head uh that you know you you create something that is more of an old than a ripoff and that's that's the best ones do it that way that that it's there are they are homages not not ripoffs of other things you you uh, you it happens in in all forms of media you hear it in in comedy a lot where there's you know similar jokes from from different comedians and it has nothing to do with them stealing the joke but but with the fact that you know that uh they really they they've built they're trying to build off of something else that that someone has built um and you, you hear it in music uh you hear it in you see it in movies like it, it's it's when done correctly uh it's done very well and this movie and i mean most of Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli works have inspired that in so many so many films that that you've that we've all seen over the years and games and yeah yeah it, it's it's 
really fun to watch the, the the original and go back to them. Yeah, it's like yeah, you definitely like like we said, a movie doesn't gross nearly two hundred million dollars in a vacuum without influencing people. You know, you know it it ends up being a a much bigger deal than than you think because it it was able to get distributed out into so many places. Uh, and and you you uh you found this and and pointed out uh this was actually the first animated movie to win uh the Japanese Academy Award for best work. Uh yeah, it won't be the last one, but this was the the first one that really I mean as as we said it was it it broke records in in Japan and it was the the first giant like Studio Ghibli has has hit had hits before, but this was their first giant hit. Yeah. You know, their first real worldwide, like, immediate kind of hit. Um, uh, fun fact, uh, which will make you feel bad about, you know, uh, the place that we live, Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, this was actually supposed to be released sooner than the 1999 release in America. Uh, it was only delayed because there was a, uh, a poor reaction at a showing in 1997 in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh no, I I wonder. Uh, uh, I wonder if actually Thor was at that screening because he he wasn't sure on the date, but he said uh, it, he was at the at the lagoon. Yeah, they said it was uh, Princess Mononoke was required after it was released in Japan. Its American release was delayed for almost two years because of a negative reception. Uh, allegedly, I should say, because of a negative reception at a St. Paul, Minnesota test screening. Uh, so apparently they did not get the right audience for that because obviously this is an amazing film. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah, this is an amazing <laughs> film. Uh, it, it, uh, so I, I actually feel like Wikipedia is wrong on something, uh, as I was looking this up, uh, because it, it said that this was, uh, submitted for best foreign language film, uh, to the 70th Oscars. Which actually would have taken place five months before this film came out, uh, so I think it was actually supposed to be submitted for the seventy-first Oscars, uh, which uh, best foreign language film. Which, if that was the case, uh, best foreign language film that year was actually won by uh, Life Is Beautiful. Hmm. Uh, I still think it should have at least been nominated, but I would agree with that. I think that this uh, this movie helped break uh, Japanese animated films, in particular, out of a bubble when it came to awards. Uh, yes, you had pointed I, I out to me that it that. won nine out of eleven awards that it was not for um, over a four-year period, um, just because there was the um, kind of a mix with the American release and the, and the, the Japanese release. So 97, 98 for the Japanese uh, release and then 2000, 2001 awards for the American release. Um, and it really, it, 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 it opened up doors for future specifically future studio Ghibli films uh, to, um, uh, to have a chance in, in, in awards where I think deservedly. So they, they are so well-written uh, that, people see animate uh, a problem in in art in general is that people put things into a box 
and so they have trouble seeing past their their opinion of of views. That's why they don't see uh, so a lot of people won't see animated films as a a medium that can portray a wonderful story. Um, same kind of thing. Uh, you see it in music where people think that a certain type of music uh, can't can't display emotions like other music. And I mean, it happens all over the place with different different mediums. But animated films and Japanese animated films get put in a box by Americans uh that you know they're they're for kids and they're just they're 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 childish um when i mean all the movies that we watch even the ones for kids have shown that they're not just for children but this one in particular really shows that that uh yeah you can put together a wonderful beautiful adult story in this kind of medium yeah yeah and and i think like like you said like this almost almost becomes like the thing that breaks through that glass ceiling uh, because, you know, this, this didn't get as much attention, uh, you know, in the West, um, in, in, in America. Uh, but I think then people finding it over the course of those couple years, people realizing like, Oh, we made a mistake. This, sh- this should have gotten more praise is, and this deserved more praise than it got. And I think retroactively that helped uh, the next big release um, that would get released more worldwide, which would have been Spirited Away. Um, and, you know, Spirited Away ends up winning Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. And I don't think it would have gotten an, that far without a movie like this coming before it. Yeah, op- really opening the doors. Um, but uh, yeah. but uh, Spirited Away is not the next movie we are going to talk about, though. Yeah, so the next movie we're talking about uh, is actually going to be one that is new to all of us, uh, those of you uh, that listen to this and and us, because it is uh, called Earwig and the Witch, and it is being released on February 3rd on HBO Max. Yeah, so so we'll do. Um, it'll be a couple weeks after because this episode will get released on the twenty eighth. Uh, so it'll be you know our regular two week schedule. Uh, so yeah, the second week of February we will uh, we will be talking about Earwig and the Witch. Yeah, and it fits into Miyazaki and me because it is also directed by Miyazaki, except it is. Uh, 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 Hayao Miyazaki's son, uh, Goro Miyazaki. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I was, I was like, it, it, it won't be Goro's first film, but it will be how because of how things ended up getting released, uh, it will be our first Goro Miyazaki film that we talk about on this podcast. Correct, and uh, I'm very excited for this. I do. I am in a camp of people that like uh, his first movie more than. Others do because Tales of Mercy is the first one that he did, and I actually very much enjoy Tales of Mercy. But uh, I, I, it's gonna, it's unique animation uh, in this in in Earwig and the Witch. So I'm I'm very excited to to essentially try something new from from Studio Ghibli. Yeah, it's it's it it feels like it looks closer to a blend of like 3D and and stop motion. Uh, so we'll have to we'll have to look into that. On how they, they it's did it's that. more of a style that that uh, a lot of th- there's been a lot of animated shows that are actually moving into this animation style now. So so current children will 
have experience with this type of animation, but us not being kids animation style ourselves. Uh, so then Shane, uh, plug your, uh, your other stuff that you've got coming up. Uh, yeah, I actually have two podcasts out there. Uh, uh, they both release once a month on the off weeks of this one. Um, uh, one is called the Animaniacs. Uh, that is with my buddy Carl, uh, where we discuss some of our favorite anime. Uh, you can find that on, uh, we, we release it on Anchor, uh, which also co-releases it onto Spotify. So we're very easy to find. Um, and that one, uh, we are currently, our, our first first undertaking of that is uh, listening to My Hero Academia. Uh, as of this release, we have three episodes out. Um, so go check those out. They're they're all about half an hour apiece and so not terribly terribly long. Um, if you're trying to watch along with us, we're watching two episodes at a time of, of My Hero Academia, so go check those out as well. Um, and then the other podcast I do with my buddy Gabe uh, is called the Five Star Movie Podcast. Uh, and in that one, we are actually watching... Um, we each choose a movie that we think is a five-star movie. Uh, now, the caveat for this are... We are not watching these movies and then saying they're five star and then discussing it. We are saying that they're five star movies from things we've seen in the past, then watching it, then discussing it. Some of the movies uh, uh, only one of us have seen uh, because we're not discussing, you know, we're not basing it off of uh, combined rankings. We each have our own five stars and uh, through and, and trying to see where, where we each stand on these. Uh, uh, the interesting part of this format is some of these films are from long ago. We remember them as five stars, and maybe not all of them stay five stars. So we've got a few episodes of that out uh, that is also being released on Anchor now. Uh, so you can also find that on Spotify. Yep. Um, and hopefully by the time this podcast is released, uh, I will have gotten the Anchor feed up as well for this podcast. Um, hitting a couple snags, uh, redirecting the podcast feed, but, uh, you'll be able to find that, uh, as always with everything at, uh, knocked out entertainment and at knocked out films on all social media. Uh, be good to each other. <laughs>